Welcome back to The Peripheral. Have you ever felt like you live a cursed life or that your family has had a curse leveled upon them? Today, I speak with Janet, who has suffered multiple tragic losses within her family. And with all the loss she's endured and health issues she's experienced, Janet assumed she or anyone within her vicinity would suffer some terrible fate. We all think lightning can't strike twice, but what if it does? My name is Janet, and uh, the purpose for me being here today is we have a condition in my family that is called RYR2. It's a gene mutation, but uh, this all started really for me when I was 11 years old. Uh, my family consisted of my mom and dad. We all lived in the same house. My sister, Diane, was 11 years older than I was, so she was 22. My eldest brother is uh, 10 years older than I am, and my middle brother is seven years older than I am. Um, so there's quite a, a bit of an age gap between all of us. My sister, Diane, had a four-year-old daughter at the time, and she was attending Northern Michigan University, which is in Upper Michigan in Marquette. My sister was living in an apartment with her daughter on her own at that point in time. She was, Diane was absolutely smart. She was so, so, so smart. And the way that she was, you know, as an 11 year old child looking at her, I just, I thought, wow, she's everything that I wanna be. She was the reason I started smoking cigarettes when I was younger. Um, because when I was a kid, I remember her blowing cigarette smoke into a bubble and you could just see the swirl of the cigarette smoke going around in, in the bubble. And it just looked so, so fascinating to an 11 year old kid. And, um, I mean, she had all these books that were just amazingly huge. She was studying Spanish in addition to English at the, at the, um, at the college and she was on the dean's list at NMU. She won uh, and placed in a poetry competition at NMU. I mean, she was just, she was fabulous. I absolutely loved her and looked up to her as a sister. My other siblings might have different opinions, but you know, that was, that was for me. And so the last day that I actually saw her alive was on the 4th of July of 1988. We had went uh, kind of doing some, uh, what, do you, what do you want to call it? We went to Munising to kind of sightsee, you know, do some fun things around there, see some waterfalls and, and rock formations and whatnot. And um, so as we were kind of doing our thing, my mom told my sister, hey, you know, we'll watch, we'll watch your daughter for you. So that way you can kind of have a parental break. And uh, that's kind of where we parted ways. And the next day, around the afternoon, my mom had taken her daughter back home. And because my sister's blinds were drawn to her apartment, my mom kind of had a sense that something wasn't right. And she was right. She was absolutely correct. My sister had died. Uh, so, of course, I remember getting the phone call where my mom was letting my dad know so he could let the rest of us know that this had happened. And that had a, a huge, huge, huge impact on me, of course. I was still in my formative years. I, I had no idea what was happening. And I remember when I heard that there was going to be an autopsy, being an 11-year-old kid, I thought an autopsy meant that they were going to try to bring her back to life. Oh, and um, that obviously is not the case, but the autopsy that was done at that point in 1998, I'm sorry, 1988, was they couldn't find a cause. And I think that's common for cardiac arrest, that once you have the cardiac arrest, they can't tell what happened to you. It's just that you've died. Mm -hmm. So unless you go further, what do you find? They can tell that the heart had a problem. What was the root cause? They don't know. Right, exactly. So intermingling with all of this, you know, after this happened, started kind of getting into uh, the, the paranormal. One of the things that I thought about was like, you know, my sister isn't going to forget me 
for my birthday. She's going to call me on the phone. She's not going to say anything and I'm going to know that it's her and that she remembered my birthday. And that phone call never came, of course, but it was still, it was still devastating. And um, there was a song that was popular at that time or around that time, The Escape Club. It was called I'll Be There. It was definitely from a position of a, a person that's passed away and saying that I may not be there in, in person, but in spirit, I'm there. And you can look up the lyrics if you're interested. But I mean, it to me, it just, every time I heard it, I would just cry. I would just cry and cry and cry. And as a result, eventually within the next two years, I was diagnosed with depression, uh, major depression. One of the dynamics that's interesting about my story is the fact that I grew up, aside from just being in, in upper Michigan, uh, which is unique in and of itself, um, I lived, I am a Finnish American. And um, so I grew up in a church that was very uh, Finnish oriented. As a matter of fact, it's considered uh, Lestadianism, which was started in Finland. I really didn't like the church experience. I didn't like some of the the aspects of it. I just kind of just went. But it was important to show uh, that you were you were being you were behaving when you were in church. It wasn't like some of these these uh, new churches or more peppy churches where you know the the teenagers are in a separate section. You don't have a band. You don't have any engagement like that. Some of the songs that we would sing in church. I mean, the most fun song that we sang was "Jesus Loves Me." That was basically about it. And I just, I didn't, I didn't really like it. Everybody sang the same notes. The the kids and everybody were all together. You had to behave yourself, which I mean, you understand. That's an understandable aspect of church, but. If you didn't like it, you couldn't bow out. You couldn't say, no, I'm not doing this. You still had to go. And one of the other aspects of the church experience too was the fact that we would sometimes twice a year go to different states for church because we had alternate locations through like Wisconsin, Minnesota, things like that. Um, and those were primarily for like um, Labor Day and Memorial Day weekends. So you would be in this collaboration with all of these people and you'd be there for hours and hours and hours. And it just got a little bit much for me, to be honest with you. But um, I'm, I'm hearing a rebellious origin story right now. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. And so basically, at, at my point of view, by the time I was six years old, I knew I didn't want anything to do with the church. And I knew by the time I was 18, I was going to be out. I just, you know, I hadn't the nerve to do it at that point yet. After that happened, by the time I was 14, I was getting into high school and I had gotten accepted into uh, something called the UPYC, which is the Upper Peninsula Youth Choir. I was super excited about it. And so was my mom. All of the meetings and, and the practices were going to be happening at Northern. And so I was looking at this as this is going to be so much fun. I'm going to love it. I'm going to enjoy myself. And truly, I did. It was one of my favorite things that I've really ever done in my life uh, to a certain point. Uh, unfortunately, life had another twist. And that was my mom. Uh, one week after her birthday, her 49th birthday, she was attending Northern Michigan University. She was going back to school for her teaching degree to finish that up. And uh, while she was in the bathroom before she went to class, she started vomiting. She choked on, on her vomit, aspirated, and went into a cardiac arrest from there. And from there she was, they hadn't found her for a few minutes, it sounds like, so enough oxygen was cut off to the brain and she was left in a coma for about six months. And that was from October of 91 until she came out of it, but was in a persistent vegetative state. And uh, she was also, for the most part, non-communicative. For a time, she had the ability to say a couple of words, but really 
it didn't last very long. So most of the time when we would go and see my mom at the nursing home, um, she would just kind of follow you around with her eyes. And that was really all that she could do. But she knew that you were there. She could respond appropriately. So if you told her something that she thought was funny, she would laugh. Or if she told, if you told her something that she thought was sad, she would cry. So there was something happening in there. When that happened, I think that was like the breaking point for my dad. My dad, I love him to pieces, but at that time I hated him because I couldn't understand why as a 15, 14, 15 year old, I was kind of left to my own devices. My dad was of the age that the way that you take care of your family is you support them financially. And he definitely did that. He was a metallurgic engineer at the mine in our area. And uh, he was absolutely fabulous with it. But uh, he just, he didn't know how to raise a teenage daughter. When it first happened, I remember my dad coming home and saying that there was something wrong with my mom. And I thought, well, she has a broken leg, you know, whatever. And I think we were both expecting that my mom was just going to, she was going to come out of it. She was going to get better. And that didn't happen. So that was not the case, obviously, as I, as I mentioned, but so the dynamics at home at first were like the dishes didn't get washed. Essentially the dishes piled up and piled up and piled up. And eventually we got to a point where we'd wash one dish or a couple of dishes at a time to meet what our needs were. And then, you know, but that eventually I'm like, all right, I need to do these dishes. And then life started to kind of take on a different day by day, put one foot in front of the other kind of. Yeah. To parent yourself. Um... I did. I did. And the thing is, is with this church community that I'm talking about, um, I had three sets of godparents. Not sure why, but I did. Not all of them were close in, in proximity to where I lived, but you know, they were kind of all on standby. And I don't know that any of these people had any idea as to the isolation that I was feeling at that time with the depression. And I think because of the fact that this was traumatic, not just to me, but to the entire family, to the entire community, my mom was somebody who was absolutely fabulous. She was a wonderful, wonderful woman. And she had a laugh that was just absolutely contagious and she could talk your ear off. I got that from her. You're welcome. And she just had such a wonderful spirit about her and she took wonderful care of me. I think my dad, when this happened to my mom, my dad felt like a failure because he didn't know quite how it was going to play out. And I think he felt a lot of guilt, but he took responsibility. He took guardianship over her. He made sure to take care of all of the things involving her care. Yeah. And uh, every day, rain, shine, snow, whatever the case may be, we went to the nursing home when she was finally placed in the nursing home. We'd spend an hour there and then we'd leave. I mean, Justin, how many 15-year-olds do you know spend an hour a day at a nursing home mm -hmm. unless they're volunteering for college or, you know, something like that? But it's not traditional. And I don't know a lot of 15-year-olds that have <laughs> lost their sibling and right. are having to see their mom in this state. No, it's it's not an enviable position by any stretch of the imagination. But so my mom was like that for 19 years when she eventually passed away. And um, I, I think for me, you know, to kind of sum it up, it was like, because I was in this religion that that kind of said, you know, miracles can happen. And so many times people would use these platitudes, which I have to say, if you have to use a platitude, please, please be genuine. Please be cautious with how you use it. Because in my case, I went down a rabbit hole that left me hurting much more than I needed to be. But the platitude that was used was everything happens for a reason. And to me, I kept going down this rabbit hole of what's the reason? Why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to my mom? Why would God do this to my sister, my family? 
And I, and all I came down to was it's me. I'm the reason. And I had no support from my family because we were all in different points in our life. I don't think, like I said, I don't think anybody really truly knew what I was experiencing at that point in time. And how could they? And using, you know, giving a child or a platitude is just, you can maybe give that to an, an adult. And maybe if they're not in a horribly dark place, they could say, okay, everything happens for a reason. This is showing right. me that I'm a stronger person or I could get through this. But no, a, a teenager, you're just going to be like, oh, the world hates me. Uh, yeah. It's unfair and uh, I shouldn't even be here. Yeah. At certain points, I felt like I was cursed and I was terrified. I was terrified as a kid. I was like, oh my God, if I turn, you know, when I turn 21, am I going to die? When I turn 49, am I going to die? Are these my future leanings? So why would I try to put myself in a place of trying to better myself if I just thought that I was going to die anyway? I mean, I've already seen essentially one person lose their life and another person having half of a life, if even that. I, I can't... I can't fault anyone for not wanting to go to the nursing home to see my mom. Nursing homes, as a general rule, until we change it, they are depressing places to go. You don't really go there to have a good time. It's basically to kind of do your service and then leave as fast as you can. My grandmother spent some time in a nursing home and she had about 60 seconds of recall and oh. people kept telling me to go visit her. And the couple times I visited her, she didn't even know who I was. Yeah. And she thought I was like my cousin's friend. And and they're like, well, and I, I didn't go back and visit her. And then they're like, why not? And I'm like, well, because it's for you. Like, you're yeah. making you feel good. She doesn't have any clue that I'm present, doesn't have yeah. any clue who I am. And I don't have any interest in seeing her in this state essentially right this, this right. horrible just uh she's she's scared because she doesn't know where she is she's yeah. introduced to new people every moment of the day and she's trying to follow along with basic conversations i didn't want to see her like that yeah and there is this idea of how do you want to remember someone i i mean unfortunately as we get older things start to break down and and things happen the natural aging progression makes unfortunate things happen and and it's going to happen for everyone until we can figure something else out but i don't think that's going to happen yeah not, but, not a lot of times yeah <laughs> no and there's no training for walking in as a kid and and kind of experiencing this so everything was just very very traumatic so to add a little bit more drama and, and tragedy into it on christmas night of 92 my house burned down so I've now lost my sister, my mom, and now the house that I was raised in. And so now so, you have this confirmation bias that you are cursed. Yeah. 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 It really, it really seemed like when it rains, it pours. We ended up getting a new home, obviously, but it really felt like that home was waiting for my mom to come home. And none of us really ever felt very felt really comfortable there like we had in our old home and coincidentally that was electrical wiring now to add to the more complicated dynamics one of the things that i think that may not be unique to my family but one of the things that seemed to kind of be what i was experiencing was you just pull yourself up from your bootstraps you just you kind of just put one foot in front of the other and do and behave and as a 15-year-old, I wasn't about behaving. I had lost so much already. Nobody was reaching out to me and saying, I love you, Janet, hugging me, telling me that, you know, they were there for me. And so I started rebelling. I started drinking alcohol. I started smoking pot. I started having sex. Um, I put myself in situations that were exceptionally dangerous where I could have died. I've been raped multiple times uh, by multiple partners, uh, acquaintance. Um, you know, there have been a number of situations that I've put myself in that could have ended very, very much worse. And fortunately, they didn't. 
it sounds like you felt like you could die at any moment anyways it's yeah it's sort of like a doc holiday complex of my life You're... is going down the tube so why not well and and the tragedy of all of this for me is the fact that i just wanted somebody to love me justin my dad the only time that i remember him really ever telling me that he loved me was the night that our house burned down i was the only one at home it was me and my dog and I watched my childhood home burning down. My dad and, and my oldest brother were at church with his family. And, you know, being that it was Christmas night, it was my nephew's first Christmas, you know, all this. I mean, I thought my dad was going to kill me as soon as he found out. I thought he was going to kill me. And he came, he came to the house and I told him that I was afraid he was going to kill me. And he said, Janet, these are all things we can get again. But he said, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done if I would have lost you. And it was the most emotional that I had ever seen my father before. I never really got that again. My dad was a very straight laced, kind of put one foot in front of the other kind of guy. And when you would ask him how he was doing, he would say steady by jerks, which I kind of thought was weird. but. I get it now. You just, you kind of keep yourself, yourself steady, even though everything's uh, out of control. Yeah. He never expressed himself. And this is a parenting no-no for anybody who's listening, but I had gotten into an abusive relationship at a certain point. I was 17 years old, going to be 18. I had gotten into this relationship with an abusive guy. I, of course, I didn't know it at first until it was too late. By this point, I had already missed a lot of school a lot of school. And I had gotten a note from the school saying, if you miss any more school up to this date, you're going to be kicked out. All right, cool. So by the time that that date came, I told my abusive boyfriend at the time, I said, I have to go to school. And he told me that if you go to school, I'm going to beat you. And so I didn't go to school. So I got kicked out. After I left him and that relationship didn't last very long, but fortunately for me, because it was dreadful. But after I got out of that, I spent a bit of time in the psych unit and uh, between two different psych units. And then I went to get involved with my first husband and I had my first child with him. I got married to him shortly after we had our child because I felt like there was a social responsibility of that if you have a child out of wedlock, because of the religious upbringing that I had, that you're supposed to marry that person. And when I called my grandma, who's like as, as staunch a religious person as I know, and I told her that I was going to be marrying him, she told me, Janet, don't. And I should have listened, but I didn't. She was giving you the permission you needed to not. Yes, yeah. yes. She was saying, I, I know what we say, but please don't. And I didn't listen to her, but it was it was my learning experience to have. And so that's what happened. My first husband and I didn't stay married for long. It, it didn't end very well and we didn't part on good ways, but it was for the best. And I got involved with my now husband and he's my hero. I put him through a lot because when I first got into the relationship with him, I was expecting him to treat me like garbage, like everybody else had, or how I had expected that he, you know, a person was going to treat me. And I charged at him. I remember one night, you know, just kind of going up to him and saying, hit me, hit me. And I kept demanding him to hit me. And he just looked at me like, no. So you're like baiting him into fights. I am. And baiting yes. him into yeah it's weird how no one deserves to be hit no one deserves to be abused but it's I, i'm so fascinated that you brought that up because one person i dated in my past she kind of behaved that way and it yeah. dawned on me oh that's how everyone else treated her yeah and i wouldn't lay a hand on her i you know and, and i never understood why we fought all the time i never understood why there was always this checkmate situation mm -hmm. she would put me in um yeah when you're used to being treated so poorly by 
whatever it is, your partner or your family or your community, you hold an expectation of what the next is going to be. And even though it's not an, a fair assessment of the situation, it, it's, it, it's almost like you make what you expect to happen, happen. And yeah. that was kind of what I was doing. I was, I was testing him, obviously, but seeing if it was actually going to happen. And at that point, I was in Wisconsin by this point. So the, I had a lot to lose. But to fast forward, my cardiac arrest happened in December. Actually, it was a few hours after my birthday um, in 2011. Uh, my husband and I had went out for for my birthday. We had went out to eat, went and visited a friend. At a certain point, my brain kind of turns off. And I think that it was because my brain was trying to tell me, you're not prepared for what's gonna happen. So it was a protective mechanism, I believe. And what happened was we left from our friend's place and I remember saying goodbye, but I don't remember driving home. I don't remember walking up the stairs. I don't remember seeing my daughter. I don't remember any of that. You don't remember the pain no, I remember absolutely nothing. So it was kind of triggering for me to do the research on this because I actually looked up a, a video on YouTube, despite the fact that they don't show the jerking of the body and stuff like that. It was still kind of triggering for me to revisit something, to get that visualization and to get yeah. that idea of what happens because I had never really done it before because of that fear. And I had this cardiac arrest that night, my husband, unfortunately, he was going to the bathroom. And I guess I, I yelled at my daughter because it was late. It was like after midnight. I yelled at her for some reason. Then I dropped. With fall season arriving, you might be looking for some wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, and it can help you fuel up for fast breakfast, lunch, or dinner with chef-prepared, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with any healthy lifestyle. I'm really lazy when it comes to food prep or making any kind of meal, so this is just perfect for me. I can pop something in the microwave, or I can grab one of their shakes, and I'm on the go. I had their chicken and sun-dried tomato the other day. Also had their three-bean vegan chili. It was amazing. They have options for everybody. They also have a snack supply with over 45 add-ons to suit your various preferences and tastes or refreshing beverage options like cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. I love their cold-pressed juices. They're amazing. Head to factormeals.com peripheral50 and use code peripheral50 to get 50% off. That code peripheral50 at factormeals.com peripheral50 to get 50% off now. I remember waking up in the ambulance and I remember throwing up and then I was out. And then I remember being at the hospital and I remember a nurse cleaning my hair out because I had vomit in my hair. I have developed over the years a bizarre sense of humor. Um, it can be kind of dark, it can be very sarcastic. For me, one of the things that was noted by my husband when I first came to first thing I said was those sons of bitches cut my pants I had just bought a couple of pairs of pants like a couple of days before and I was wearing one of those new pair of pants and I was really mad because the paramedics had cut my pants so that was that was an expression that I had I obviously don't remember that otherwise uh, I'd laugh about it myself so with all of this in mind I had to sit down, well, lay down and talk to a, an electrophysiologist is what it's called. It's like more of a specialty regarding, you know, someone who's had a cardiac arrest, um, providing surgery for implanting pacemakers, ICDs, things like that. Um, and so I was talking to this electrophysiologist and I was explaining to him about my history with uh, my family and how things have kind of went. And he said, you know what? I really think as a measure of safety because of how many people have been impacted that we should uh, have an ICD implanted in you. I had one implanted and I was told that if it goes off, it feels like a horse kicking you in the chest. 
which is absolutely mortifying. But I can honestly tell you, while I have not been kicked in the chest by a horse, I can't imagine that that's how it feels. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, in addition to that, so I have I have two children. Uh, one that was from uh, my ex-husband, another from a previous relationship. Her name is Darian, and Darian and Ashley, my eldest daughter, uh, they were both very different children, very beautiful children, very wonderful children to certain extents. And of course, children aren't perfect, so they drive you nuts, they make you crazy, and all of those things. So Ashley presented with her own set of circumstances, whereas Darian was just kind of flighty and, and kind of let things go as they may. And while she didn't observe my cardiac arrest, her sister did, and and Darian, she was dealing with a lot, even at her age. She was, she was 15. And um, sometimes kids say weird things. Uh, you know, I always kind of felt like some of the things that Darian was saying was like, I really think that maybe this is something that you're just kind of worried about something, but it's not, even though I didn't say that, it was just in the back of my head, like, you know, that doesn't make sense, right? Like, why do you feel this way? Or why do you think this? But at the same time, I never called her out on it because I didn't want her to feel like she couldn't tell me. And so I always tried to leave those things open. But there was one day where she said, mom, I'm afraid of getting older. That was really an awful moment for me because not only did I understand that feeling very, very well, she knew that I had a cardiac arrest. She saw my mom in the nursing home. She didn't know my sister, obviously, but there was an understanding that something had happened to my sister. So yeah, you have this little girl telling you that she's afraid of getting older. And then around Thanksgiving, she comes with us to a friend of ours place, the same one that I had, I had left from prior to having the cardiac arrest. We were there for Thanksgiving. And she had approached my husband and she asked, what happens to you when you die? You know, like what happens to you physically? You know, what happens to your spirit? What happens? And I felt kind of bad when my husband told me about that because it was like, you know, she could have come to me and asked, but it was nice that she had an opportunity to do that with my husband. And then two days later, she was with some friends and she had a cardiac arrest while she was with them. The people that were there, the adults that were there, they did provide CPR. And when I first got the call from one of her friends, she was just, I'm sorry, I'm gonna get emotional. Um, she told me, she said, I think something's wrong with Darian. And I said, well, you know, I, I basically was like, what's going on? And, and she said, you know, I think she's having a seizure. And I feel so guilty about this because um, I, I just said, you know, I thought to myself, she's, you know, she's exaggerating. She's playing around. She's. You were being hopeful. I, yeah, I was. I, I really was. But, you know, I just, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine it happening. And at this point, you have no idea that you have this issue in your family. No. I mean, we we come to find out, I think, a little bit later. I can't remember the exact time frame of it. But um, so, yeah, we we don't quite know about all of this and, and the profound impact. But, you know, when Darian has this happen... Uh, she's transported to the hospital and in the hospital, I was really being hopeful. I was playing some of the music that she would like to listen to. Um, she really liked watching Red versus Blue. And so I brought and played some of that, you know, trying to kind of bring her back into, into our consciousness, into our world again. The doctor was uh, going to do an EEG, which is basically checking your, your brain function, right? So 
they wanted to do that to see where she was at because she was, you know, she was not, she was not awake. She wasn't, you know, anything. There was nothing happening and, and she was alive, but that's all we knew at that point. And so I spent basically all my time up there. And once I found out that she didn't have the type of brain function that would enable her to come back to to life the way that we knew her in any in any form i felt like i was seeing my mom all over again yeah you had to deal with this afterlife yeah and i i couldn't i couldn't do it at that point i left the hospital i couldn't be there knowing that I was going to be looking at my daughter going through what my mother went through. She lived from November 27th of 2015 until two days before my birthday, December 15th. I was woke up in the morning that morning and my husband just looks at me and he goes, Janet. And I said, she's gone, isn't she? And he said, yeah, that was the worst day of my life. One of them anyway. Um, Sounds like birthdays aren't real great for you. <laughs> you kind of picked up on that, didn't you? <laughs> Sorry. No, and, and I didn't even mention that I broke my arm on my birthday one year either. Oh. So yeah, they really suck. <laughs> but yeah, so kind of going back to that, at, at a certain point, we find out about the RYR2 mutation. My brother, Brian, he had gotten tested. My, my eldest brother, he reflected on a time where they were, uh, they were both involved in basketball in high school. And he remembers my brother, Brian, you know, passing out. He was shoveling one time. The biking was as a result of after the Sandy Hook and the, the respective NRA meeting that was televised that got him angry and uh he went for a bike ride and after that he he passed out then too so when he went to go and see his cardiologist the cardiologist I guess was aware enough of this that he had my brother Brian tested and so at that point things started to line up also, another thing that I wanted to make sure to indicate is that my, my sister's daughter, she also had a cardiac arrest. She was actually, I don't know the band, uh, um, it was a punk rock concert, and uh, she had a cardiac arrest there. From what I hear, the band came down off of the platform to provide CPR, so punk rock saved her life. <laughs> so that's kind of a neat story. Yeah. But yeah, so we have all of these people that have had these events happen. That's just in not my, normal. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not at all. So the RYR2 gene mutation can create basically a cardiac arrest. And in some cases in our family, what we've also noticed in what the medical community is referred to as syncope, uh, which is basically a loss of consciousness. Some of our family have had, had just one or the other or both. Is that like fainting or? Yes, uh, essentially. And it just kind of exists on its own. So generally speaking with the RYR2 gene mutation, what causes things to go awry is it's exacerbated through exercise and acute stress. And so anytime any of these things have been happening, there have been, you know, uh, either excitement or uh, a stressful situation or something like that has happened and boom, that's, that's where it goes. So, but the RYR2 gene mutation is considered classified under what's called CPVT, which is an electrical instability in the heart. And CPVT, I'm not great at medical pronunciation, of course, because I'm not a doctor, a nurse practitioner or a nurse. So please forgive me. But CPVT stands for catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricle tachycardia. Okay. 
Oh, wow. That's a mouthful. (laughs) It really, really is. Um, So yeah, like I said, I did my best. But um, I did want to kind of indicate that uh, it probably is important at this part just to kind of indicate what the signs of a cardiac arrest would look like. A person that's having a cardiac arrest, it may look like they're having a seizure. Um, So just be aware of that. The person who's suffering may have their mouth open. Uh, Their head, neck, and jaw may be moving at the time as it's happening, and they may be gasping for breath, and that may sound like a snore, a groan, or a snort, and there will be long long time between gasps, and that's considered agonal breathing. It's weird just because of the the true crime aspect that I have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I know that you you can asphyxiate. And what that means is your blood is pushing the oxygen to your body and your lungs. And if your heart's stopping, well, now you're gasping for air. Even even though you can breathe, you're not getting oxygen. Right. And because of the fact that there's that long time between gasps, you're literally struggling for your life at that point. But also in addition, it is kind of disturbing, I think, for someone who's watching this happen in front of them, I can only imagine, but their eyes may be open, which creates a little bit more of that, that kind of terror factor. Yeah. Now, also another thing that you will notice is that generally speaking, uh, the hand may be clenched in an unnatural way and the loss of control of the bladder, which is, which is basically something that, that unfortunately happens in my case when I was kind of conferring with my husband just to kind of see, okay, was there anything that set me apart in this? Um, And he said in my case that I was also foaming at the mouth. Now, there are also multiple different types of electrical causes for uh, cardiac arrest. I'm not necessarily going to go into that because those don't concern my situation. But if you have questions about it, I would definitely look it up. Um, Those are called long QT short QT and Brugada syndromes. For me, I feel like because of the depth of where this goes in my family, it's really super important for me to kind of put it out there. Did you learn anything when you did your own research? I did. I did. And actually, um, when we had our, our gene testing done, some interesting information that uh, part of the process of how the heart works with the RYR2 there is a process of releasing the calcium ions, which plays an important role in the muscle contractions. And so with a cardiac arrest, it's basically your heart is quivering instead of allowing the pump, the pumping of the blood to go naturally. And when it quivers, that causes the cardiac arrest. One thing that was particularly scary uh, to me, honestly, Justin, is the fact that 60 to 80% of people who have cardiac arrests out of hospital die before they get to the hospital. And that's another motivating factor of this conversation is because if we can provide aid to the people when they're outside of the hospital, maybe this conversation doesn't necessarily need to happen. Maybe at that point, we'll start to fix things and, and be better. But I had an uncle who had a, a a mild, I guess you could say, heart attack, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't realize it. Oh my gosh. And went, you know, never went to the hospital because he didn't know what was wrong with him. Yeah. Uh, until he finally was told he needed to get a pacemaker. Oh my and gosh. And then they tried to put that in him, but not knowing that he had a heart attack, pacemaker wasn't working because it was on dead tissue. Oh, and that just one thing led to another to the point where he ended up dying. But uh, um, it, it's it just it's weird how people can have a, a horrendous uh, cardiac arrest and not make it to the hospital, while as other people can have a heart attack and not even know. Yeah, and I'm I'm hearing more things about younger people having cardiac arrests and. I think it's important to clarify that it seems like the term heart attack and cardiac arrest are used interchangeably, but they're not the same. 
Yeah, and I I know I do it. No, and I'm guilty it, yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a something that's a sticking point for me, just because of the fact that it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're talking about something completely different. Yeah. And in your uncle's case, I I do apologize, and you know, my condolences for all of the losses that you've suffered in your family too, of course. Sure. But you know, the heart attack is generally because of a blockage in the arteries or you know something of that nature and if you have a heart attack you still can end up having a cardiac arrest in addition to that yeah you know i don't know if you're aware of that but it can just kind of go that way now i know and i'll try to be more you know accurate with my uh, verbiage here (laughs) no and it's and it's not it's not scolding you please understand that Uh, as far as the cardiac arrest, though, you know, that's, that's a completely different thing. That's, your heart is stopping beating for some reason, but it's generally due to an arrhythmia. And like I said, it's your, your heart quivers instead of pumping in the blood. And when you have a cardiac arrest, you don't find yourself going into a heart attack. If you have a cardiac arrest, you have a cardiac arrest and that's it. So yeah, it's, you know, we've had, we've had family members who have had heart attacks and and cardiac arrest, but, you know, it, it, and it's unfortunate. Our society as Americans, we we definitely prime ourselves to have heart attacks through all of the greasy foods and and things that, like that that we consume, so. And stress in our lives. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. Obviously, you can understand my passion behind wanting to talk about this because, you know, if it was one or two people, okay, that's kind of quirky, whatever, but, you know, this is a grouping of people now in one family. So this isn't okay. Somebody needs to say something about this. So in this process, after my brother Brian was tested, then we got involved in a company called Gene DX. I guess they're over on the East Coast somewhere like Maryland, I believe. They've basically been testing my family to find out who has it and who doesn't. And they're stacking all of this data right? So there is the propensity for this to continue to happen. I also, through my research, found out, and this was something that I found a number of years ago, where there are people in Finland back in the 1990s, they first found out that this was a thing, uh, this RYR2 gene mutation. And there were thousands of people in Finland that were going to be notified about this this gene mutation that could run in their family. And this comes from someone in the 17th century. I think there's a possibility that it has to do with my Finnish heritage, but I don't necessarily wanna say that, you know, Darian was only a part Finnish. The rest of it was was German and, and whatever else her father had, but genes are genes. They pass from one person to another in the creation process. And so who gets what? You never know. Yeah, because recessive and all that dominant yeah. genes. Maybe at some point, because we're we're able to kind of find what genes exist and maybe be able to remove them to be able to kind of take out the unwanted stuff and maybe have the quote unquote perfect child. So it was your brother that really got the test done? Yes, my brother Brian did. He was basically the, you know, where everything kind of started to make sense. And so without him, we'd still be looking at ourselves as as cursed. I mean, between your all your family members, I understand why you felt cursed. I really yeah. do. I, yeah. I, I'm just shocked that there wasn't a doctor somewhere along the way that's like, oh, we need to look into this or... What is going on here? Like, Well, even with Darian, you know, before she had passed away, she had two events passing out, which obviously at that point, we didn't understand that it was the gene mutation or, or otherwise we would have done something. But I told him, I said that for the cardiologist, I said, there's something that's going on in our family. But he's like, well, according to the tests, she has this, but we don't know anything about what's causing this. So I can't say that it does. And as much as at the time I was so angry at him for that position, I also can't blame him for that either because he was no, no more wise than we were per se. 
And if it is a Finnish thing, I think it makes sense that it was in Marquette, a physician in in Marquette that detected it. As far as my story, I don't necessarily want to say that, you know, it all ends on a bad note or, or whatever. I mean, obviously, when you lose so many people, there is this inherent PTSD, right, that happens. I mean, between the house fire and, and the loss of the people, there's there's PTSD, there's the, the depression and anxiety. I have really had to work on myself a lot over the years with regards to that. I've been in therapy for, I mean, 20 some odd years. And um, it's it's definitely been helpful. I'm I'm on some really good medication at this point. I have an amazingly supportive husband and his family is amazing. I, I love them to pieces. Uh, but it's hard because when you don't have the family support, your nuclear family, and you feel like everybody's looking at you like you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this, but instead you went the other way. And so therefore you're bad, you're, you know, whatever the case may be. And they put those preformed biases and judgments on you, whether they intended to do or not. I was in a really, really bad place. And nobody came up to me and said, Janet, I love you. And I'm sorry that this is happening to you. And I am here for you. And I will always be here for you. I had family members who were taken away from me as far as being able to spend time with them because I was doing all of these colossally wrong things. Instead of just blanketing out someone as that you're a bad person because you're you're committing bad acts maybe there's something behind it. And that goes for so many things in our society. The boyfriend that's horrible to you. Well, mm-hmm. he's a horrible person, but why? Yeah. But what, what accountability do we need to take, you know, with a father to a daughter or, mm-hmm. or with you? It's why are you lashing out? Why are you misbehaving? Why are you acting right. this way? I think that our society has so many preformed biases and conclusions that we create based off of what makes us feel comfortable or what what answers we can kind of come to because that's the easiest thing to do, right? And if you put a lot of effort into trying to understand somebody who's who's a problem child, well, yeah, it's probably preferred, but Hey, give me a hug. Let's do this. I'm I'm here. Show me that you care about me. Don't just kind of push me to the side and say, you're not good enough. You're not a good niece. You're not a good sister. You're not a good daughter. You know, and while nobody necessarily told me that specifically, it felt like that. And I lived with that for so long. I live in a very tiny community here in Kiwani. Wisconsin. And, and I have had three neighbors in a relatively short span of time. All three of these people in this radius have had brain aneurysms. I felt like it was my fault because I moved there. Oh, no. you know, like I felt like the curse extended to the people that were in my, like the one guy, I don't even know. Why do I feel responsible for him? Yeah. It's because I felt like I had some kind of like black cloud hanging over me that said, not only am I a bad person, not not only did I do terrible things, not only did I deserve to feel bad, but you know, this, this happened. So it's your fault. I had my therapist ask me, what kind of supernatural power is that, that you could cause someone single-handedly to have something like that happen? And it caused me to kind of sit back and go, yeah, that is really messed up. But when you're clouded with depression and anxiety and PTSD, like I have been all of these years, there are all of these negative statements that, that I've told myself over the years that have left me feeling isolated and damaged and, and hurt. And when I started to kind of come out of that a little bit, you know, I've started to realize that not only did I not do that, that there was an entire community, let alone my family, that were traumatized that didn't know how to comprehend what was happening or even how to move forward. My mom really was probably the glue that kept our family together. 
And so not only was my dad fractured, but her family was fractured. And they were the closest people to us at that point in time of my life. And I felt like when they left, when I don't want to say they left, but like when they weren't actively in my life, I felt like I was doing something wrong. I couldn't understand at that point in time because my brain was still developing and I couldn't make sense of what adults motives or reasons behind things were because I was still trying to be a child and nobody gave me the permission to be a child. They expected me to become an adult and act like an adult at 15 years old. That's not something that happens very easily. And for the expectation to be set, that you're just gonna pick yourself up from your bootstraps and you're just gonna behave yourself. The statement is it takes a village. I had a village, I lost a village. Mm -hmm. How was I supposed to function without my village? Your village wasn't exactly there for you when you were a child either. No, as an adult, I've had to struggle with the idea of, do I forgive these people knowing what I know now? You know, can I forgive them knowing what I know now? Just recently, the reason why I hadn't scheduled our interview for last week is because I had a a medical procedure done where I had to be put under and I didn't know how long it was going to take. So when I came out from under the anesthesia, I started crying because people had treated me so well and I couldn't understand why they were treating me so well. I've lived a life of whether I've created the isolation of my own doing because of my depression and anxiety and PTSD, you know, and and that was a part of it for a certainty, but these people that were family members have came to my community where I lived at the time and they never reached out to me. They never said hi. They never called me on the phone. They might've inquired to my dad or, or some of my brothers, but they never, called me specifically. And one of my godmothers, when I got married at a Renaissance fair to my now husband, she wore a black dress to our wedding, which was basically a statement of, I don't accept this. I don't agree with this. And it's sad because you want people that were embedded into your life to be a part of your life forever. But you know, the honest truth of it is that I didn't need them. I have a family now. I have my husband, like I said, who's my hero. I have a fabulous life now. I have complications still that I'm working through, but with being able to talk to you about this, I'm opening the conversation and I'm hoping we can do better. My employer just got an AED, which will help people if they do have a cardiac arrest. And I hope and implore for other employers that have employees under them please, if you don't have one, get one, you might save a life. We need to be able to open the floodgates for contacting the Red Cross, get your CPR training. You don't need to do mouth to mouth anymore. It's chest compressions. It's easy. So do it because you don't know one day you might save a life. There's no better feeling in the world than being able to know that you helped someone have another tomorrow because none of us know when we're done until it does. And, and that's really the, the gist of it. I don't want people to die if they don't have to. And my story, yeah, it's one story, but there are so many lives that have been impacted out of this. And to be honest with you, had I had known about the genetic mutation, I'm not sure that I would have made the decision to have children. I love my children and I miss both of my kids every day. My eldest daughter and I don't have a great relationship, so we're not really on speaking terms, but I miss her and I love her and I hope for the best for her. But for my youngest daughter, I miss her every single day and she's in my heart. I know that no matter what, even though she's not with me, she's with me. I just hope that I'm making. I'm making them proud in being able to say, please take care of yourself. Nobody else will just do it. But it's just important that if we haven't done it before, we need to start now.
So I couldn't have I said it better myself. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, so I really do appreciate the time. I hope that, you know, for who's listening, that they understand the reason that I'm offering up this information and, and to please, you know, if you feel that someone in your family, somebody that you know and love is experiencing something like this, please, just because they passed out doesn't mean there isn't a problem. Please check with your doctor, make sure that you prioritize yourself because it's your life is important 